Welcome to the Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 16, Jean Gerson. Welcome back. So we've been hanging out for a while in the same roughly half a century. It's been all the way since Guillaume de Marchaud, through Christine de Pizan, John Wycliffe, and Jan Hus. We've been staying in the late 1300s to early 1400s. Well, we're going to stay there just one more episode. And then we will move on to something else. I promise. But the man we're going to look at today interacted with just about each person we've talked about previously, either directly or indirectly. And while this man is certainly not a household name in the modern world today, he was at the center of the storm for many of the storms that racked European society of that time. And in his day, he was one of the most important and occasionally one of the most influential people in all of Europe. And his name is Jean Gerson. So you're getting to know this period pretty well, but let's recap just a little bit the world in which Gerson was born into. Gerson was born in France in 1363. This is just 15 years after the Black Plague hit Europe. And in 1363, the Hundred Years' War was still plugging away, draining the finances of both France and England. It had started 30 years before in the 1330s, and it wouldn't end until 1453 long after Gerson died. And, as we have discussed many times now, it was the time of the Avignon Papacy. And remember, this is when the popes were no longer living in Rome, but in Avignon, France. Here, the French crown could have a great deal of control over whatever the papacy did, and the popes could live very soft, comfortable lives away from the chaos and intrigue of Rome. And remember, in 1378, a second pope would be elected, and for a while Europe would have two popes. If you want to hear more about that, check out the episodes on Jan Hus or John Wycliffe. All of these things, the plague, the Hundred Years' War, the Great Schism, would seriously affect the life of Jean Gerson. But we'll get to that. Jean was born in a small French town of Gerson. He was his parents' first child though they would have 11 more. His parents were very kind and pious, and they would keep in touch with him for a long time, both with Jean and the other siblings, and seven of the Gerson children would end up working in the church. The Gersons were peasants, but not terribly poor peasants, and actually life as a peasant was getting a little bit better now than it had been a few generations before. The lack of labor from the plague meant that the peasants that did survive got higher wages, and there were more crops to gather. And Gerson's mother came from a family that was a little better to do than most peasants. Early on, Jean probably studied at his local church, and was perhaps tutored by the local priest. And he must have been pretty good, because when he was 14, he and his family decided that he should leave his small town and head to the big city, Paris, to go to the university. Now, this was a big deal because it was not financially easy to survive as a student, but apparently he and his parents thought he would do okay. So the young man left his home for the city that he would be connected with for the rest of his life. Universities are still somewhat new at this time. 
They started out as cathedral schools and then slowly morphed into something new. And as we talked about with Huss and Wycliffe, universities around this time were starting to pop up all over the place. But even though they were popping up all over, everybody knew that the greatest and most prestigious school of the day was the University of Paris. When Gerson arrived, he was lucky enough to be accepted into the College of Navarre, one of the schools in the University of Paris. After five years, he got his first degree in general arts, and then he began to work on his bachelor's in theology. It was around this time that Gerson met a character that will pop up regularly in our story. Gerson had a class with a man named Pierre Thiers. Thiers was currently chancellor of the university, but later he would become a bishop, archbishop, and then cardinal. Thiers would become a huge influence on Gerson and would be a great mentor and patron. Gerson wrote to him once saying, As often as I have come hurrying through the twisting paths of this male of misery, from boyhood to the boundary of my present age, I have been sustained by your willing support. Gerson also needed the support of D.A. financially. Instead of scholarships, students would have to work or find patrons. Remember, Huss was able to get through school by singing. Gerson himself was only able to stay in the university through the help of his new friend. And long after Gerson graduated, the two would be close. And while D.A. was a great force to be reckoned with, soon his student would outshine him. So after graduating with his bachelor's, Gerson continued his studies, but he started having administrative positions in the school as well. And in 1387, he was given a special task, to go to the Pope for an appeal. The appeal had to do with some intercollege politics, in a way. It had to do with a certain Dominican friar named John of Munson. Now, Munson was in trouble, because he, like most of his fellow Dominicans at the time, were opposed to the idea that Mary was born without original sin. They believed that Mary, like all other ordinary humans, was born into original sin. In 1387, the idea that Mary was born without sin was the official stance of the University of Paris. Monson had been kicked out of the university for teaching against it. So Monson appealed to the Pope that he had been treated unfairly. Gerson, along with his mentor D.A. and some companions, were sent to represent the university to the Pope. And while Gerson and the others supported the idea of the Immaculate Conception, they argued on the grounds that the university had the right to choose to who taught there and who did not. But while Gerson went to see the Pope, he did not go to Rome. Remember, at this time, there are two Popes, the one in Rome and the one in Avignon, France. And if you recall, all the countries of Europe lined up behind whichever Pope they liked best. Obviously, the French went with the one who lived in France. And this must have been pretty exciting for Gerson, as it was the longest journey he had ever taken in his life. And it was a great honor for him to represent the university that he loved. But when Gerson got to Avignon, it was a bit of a shock to him. There he saw just how corrupt the church had become. The court of the Pope was fabulously wealthy. And while he didn't write much about the experience itself... Immediately afterwards, he began to write and preach about the need to reform the church and how necessary it was for the church to heal the schism of two popes. Gerson and his friends won the appeal, but since the Dominicans supported Monson, all the Dominicans left the University of Paris. 
This was a hard blow, as even Gerson had to admit, the Dominicans were the best preachers at the school. In the following years, Gerson started to develop as a philosopher, writer, and a preacher himself. He loved his home country of France, and one of his special projects was to make sure its great history was honored and preserved. Along with his country, he also dearly loved the University of Paris, to which he said, I owe everything I am. Gerson continued to climb the ladder of success at the university. In 1394, he became a doctor of theology, and in 1395, he became chancellor of the whole University of Paris, the position his old friend D.A. used to have. And this position automatically made him very influential in the whole world of ideas, not just in France, but in all of Europe. While Gerson was a great man for the job, he definitely felt the pressure of this great new responsibility. Like many of the people we've looked at, Gregory the Great and Anselm, for instance, administration was not his passion. He was at home mostly as a thinker and a writer. And still, as Chancellor of the University of Paris, Gerson did do plenty of thinking and writing, and he became famous for the many short treatises on different topics he would write. As far as theology goes, Gerson did not like the intricate and often barely understandable scholastic theology of his day. We first talked about scholastic theology with our friend Anselm way back in episode 7. Remember, Anselm was all about faith-seeking understanding. And, remember, studying Anselm, it was a pretty noble goal. Well, since then, sometimes people had taken this a little too far. There's an old joke about scholastic theology that all medieval theologians would do was argue about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. While I really don't think that's fair, you certainly could not accuse Gerson of that type of theology at all. He was not interested in just deep, quote-unquote, scientific-like theology. He was afraid theology had become something too abstract and theoretical. He thought that good theology could be attained by the most simple of people, something that could be lived out and experienced. For this reason, sometimes Gerson is called a mystic, but his mysticism is different from having mystical visions or direct encounters with God, described or hoped for by other mystics. Gerson had humbler aims. In one's contemplation of God, he believed one should be patient and receptive to God's prodding, one should be aware of their own shortcomings, one should be mindful of their vocation or station in life, but not become too proud of it. One should avoid extremes and things like eating and sleeping, both too little or too much, and meditate on the good. Some of Gerson's greatest influences were Bernard of Clairvaux and Bonaventure, two great churchmen from the 1100s and 1200s, respectively. Gerson could also be frustrated with the overemphasis he saw on traditions. He complained that the common people were arguing over traditions so much that they had no time for actual biblical teachings. And somewhat surprisingly, 100 years later, Lutherans would quote him as evidence that not all traditions were good and that they should be judged against scripture. Gerson's focus on the practical and the everyday made him an excellent preacher for the common people as well. And in fact, during the apex of his career, he may have been one of the most famous preachers in all of Europe. And he was at home preaching in front of nobility or clergy or everyday people. And he was not afraid to change his style depending on his audience. And fun fact, one of his first great orations was about our old friend King Louis IX 
a.k.a. St. Louis. In many ways, Gerson preached similar things to Jan Hus. He saw corruption in the church that needed to be reformed. He preached repentance and the judgments of God on the wicked. And he also preached hope in the grace and mercy of God. Just like Huss and Wycliffe, Gerson saw many problems in the church that needed to be fixed. But we'll get to the differences soon. But in some ways, it is a tragedy how these would never end up as friends. And in fact, Huss and Gerson would end up enemies. After several years as Chancellor of the University of Paris, Gerson also became the dean of a church in Bruges, where he stayed from 1397 to 1401. So now he's both a chancellor and a dean in Paris and Bruges, respectively. Now this is something that can be called pluralism. Remember, this was an issue for the church, one person holding multiple offices, usually just to get the income from both while ignoring one or both of them. And Gerson's appointment was supposedly contingent on him doing both jobs well. Well, certainly he did try to do both jobs well, but it does show how pluralism was a big problem when even a reformer like Gerson could get dragged into it. Well, after four years of this, in 1401, Gerson returned to Paris, where he continued to be a major public figure. He would write on all sorts of different topics of his day, and was one of those very few popular public intellectuals. And here he came in contact with Christine de Pizan, and the two were allies in attacking the Romance of the Rose, Remember, that is the book which is kind of a steamy praise of courtly love. But both he and Christine believed that it was doing great damage to what true Christian love should look like. But during all of this time, during all of Gerson's career, there was a great shadow hanging over the church. The fact that there were two popes. And remember, this had been happening since 1378. So over 25 years from where we are in our story now. And this was a big issue for the church, not just practically, but also theologically. The question is, how can there be two popes? If the pope is the true vicar of Christ, then which one is the right one? Also, what if you are betting on the wrong horse and supporting and following the wrong pope? If salvation meant submission to the true pope, then you had better get that question right. Since this was a major theological question, that meant the theology departments of universities all across Europe were trying to solve it. Since the University of Paris was the most prestigious of all of them, many people looked to them. What made this even more complicated was the obvious fact that Paris is in France. And this meant that both the university and the Avignon papacy were living under the same French monarch. And remember, the French kings liked having the Pope somewhat under their control living in Avignon. So they wanted to make sure that, if anything, the Avignon papacy won out. Well, this put the University of Paris in a bit of an awkward spot. See, most of them were a little embarrassed that France had played such a big part in creating two popes. Many of them would rather just be done with the Avignon papacy. But it was not that easy, since the French nation backed Avignon and also because the Avignon popes turned out to be very stubborn. This problem nagged at Gerson for most of his career. Gerson himself was always a fan of moderation, and he was always trying to find a middle way. For instance, when his colleagues at Paris wanted to remove obedience from the Avignon pope, 
aka they wanted to switch sides, Gerson didn't support it. Gerson wanted both sides to resign and a new pope to be chosen. And in time, this would be the solution that most people looked for. Now, there were failed attempts to solve this schism in 1403 and 1407. But a bigger and more hopeful attempt came in a council in 1409. This was the Council of Pisa. And if you remember from last episode, this council began very hopefully. They were going to enact the same idea Gerson had hoped for. Both popes would resign, and a third new pope would be elected. And originally, both the popes of Avignon and Rome agreed to this. But sadly, they did not keep their word. While the new pope was being chosen, one pope declared he would not actually resign. So, of course, the other declared that he would not resign either. But the third pope was still elected. So the Council of Pisa failed in solving the problem and actually made it worse. Now there were three popes, not just two. And to top it off, this new third pope was not a very likable guy. And it was possible that all of Europe could have backed this pope, named Alexander V, and the schism would have eventually ended. But Alexander was very good at alienating many of his friends, including the University of Paris, and Gerson and Dieu, who had supported him. So for six chaotic years, Europe had three popes. Then, in 1414, the Holy Roman Emperor, if you'll remember, Sigismund, had enough. So he pressured another council. This council would be better attended, more resolute, and they were going to solve this problem. One quick note. There was also a problem of calling a council in the first place, because many people believed that only a pope, specifically only a true pope, could call a council. But what pope is going to create a council that will end their papacy? And what if the wrong pope calls the council? These were all seriously debated questions, and ones that we'll return to in a bit. Gerson D.A. and bishops and theologians from all across Europe came to this council in Constance. But of all these people, Gerson and D.A. were some of the most respected and looked up to. All in all, over 450 bishops, theologians, cardinals, and abbots came to this council, along with Sigismund and some of his court, and for the most part, everyone was determined to finish this schism. They had had enough. But it was not going to be easy. This council was, and actually still is, controversial. Because this council got to the heart of the question, who is the supreme authority in the church? Who rules the church? Who answers to whom? Some said, it's the Pope. Gerson and D.A. said, it is the whole of all believers a.k.a. it is a council. And in this way, Gerson had a different theory of church authority than the Catholic Church has today, and to what Protestants have today. Gerson was fine submitting to popes. He even thought popes were good and necessary for the order of the church. But he did not believe that popes had ultimate authority in every aspect of the church. Instead, Gerson that the pope acted on behalf of the church as a deputy, and sometimes popes can fall into error and heresy. And in that event, popes are answerable to the church as a whole, especially as formed in a council. And the church council has the authority to remove a pope from office, whether he is the true pope 
or not. Also, Gerson argued that councils do not need popes to call them into order to be valid. He pointed especially to the first four ecumenical councils, a.k.a. the universal councils of the church. For instance, the first one, the Council of Nicaea, in 325 AD, had not been called by a pope, but instead by the Emperor Constantine, who was a secular ruler. Now this belief, and what would become a movement with Gerson in its head, is known as conciliarism. It is called that because, simply put, it is the belief that the council is the supreme authority in the church. This belief always puts Gerson in a strange spot. Reformers like Wycliffe and Huss, and later Luther and Calvin, would say the ultimate authority comes from Scripture, and later Catholics would return to the idea that the popes hold ultimate authority. But we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about Gerson's legacy. Well, things at the council did not go smoothly. For instance, one pope, John XXIII, not to be confused with the John XXIII of the 20th century, well, this John XXIII was a rascal, to say the least. And, when he was supposed to resign, he actually ended up trying to flee and had to be captured and brought back to the council. And in April 1415, the council made a decree known as Hyke Sancta Senedus, which officially enforced the conciliarist view. It stated this, Legitimately assembled in the Holy Spirit, constituting a general council and representing the Catholic Church militant, it has power immediately from Christ, and everyone of whatever state of dignity, even papal, is bound to obey it in those matters which pertain to the faith. The eradication of said schism and the general form of the said Church of God in head and members. This decree would end the schism. The first pope to officially resign was Gregory XII, the Pope of Rome. But it would take two more years for the other popes to finally be deposed. So finally, in 1417, the Great Schism was officially over. But as we heard from last episode, the schism was not the only issue the council faced. Another was a rogue priest from Bohemia who seemed to be challenging the authority of the church. Of course, I'm talking about John Huss. So one of the big questions of Gerson's life is why did Gerson allow Jan to be burned? Weren't the two after the same thing? After all, both Gerson and Huss saw corruption as a big problem in the church. Both believed that the people were not reading scriptures or paying attention to scriptural authority enough. Both wanted people to return to practical, humble, and pious kinds of faith. Both were tired of the abuse of power by popes. So why couldn't these two be allies? Well, really, it comes down to the types of reformers these two men were. John Huss was ready to go straight to the heart of the problem, but Gerson wanted to do things peacefully, moderately. Gerson also always wanted to be a champion of orthodoxy. He wanted to build bridges, bring peace. So because of that, Gerson did not really like Huss. He thought Huss was bringing division back into a church that was struggling so hard to reunite itself. And because of that, he had no time for Huss. In fact, by the time he had come to the council, he'd pretty much made up his mind over Huss. And Gerson did not actually have any direct involvement in the trial, 
but simply trusted that other people, like his friend D.A., would take care of it. And it really is a great tragedy that these two ended up against each other. One can only wonder how the Protestant Reformation would have been different if Gerson, D.A., and others at the council had been more sympathetic to Huss. But we'll never know. The last issue at the Council of Constance would directly change Gerson's life, and it had nothing to do with Huss or with the Great Schism. It actually had to do with a political assassination. If you remember from the Christine de Pizan episode, the French court from about 1380 to 1430, so for about 50 years, was pretty crazy. There were all sorts of political intrigues and rival factions vying for power. Well, this political assassination was part of that chaos. A certain French duke, named John the Fearless, had a rival murdered in the street by a thug. Not only that, but the duke proudly admitted the fact. And to make matters even worse, a professor at the University of Paris was defending the duke's actions. It made Gerson furious. So Gerson had made it a point to bring up these issues to the council and publicly denounce this duke and this professor for defending the murder. But sadly, the council was not terribly interested in supporting Gerson here. In the end, all Gerson accomplished was giving the duke token admonishment. This did nothing but give Gerson a very powerful enemy. In fact, Gerson knew that he was in so much danger that after the council was over, he didn't return to Paris. Instead, he stayed with friends in Germany. And several years later, when that duke died, Gerson would return to France. But still, he would never return to Paris. Instead, he decided to live in Lyon, in France, where one of his brothers lived. And here Gerson lived out the rest of his life, and probably some of the best days of his life. He was out of the limelight now, and he had time to study and write. He wrote about theology, education, and piety, but his special joy was teaching the children of a nearby parish. Near the end of his life, he would witness the rise of Joan of Arc, and one of his last works was a treatise praising the deeds of her faith. He died in 1429. Today, Gerson is all but forgotten. I've studied church history in college and when I was in seminary, and yet his name was new to me. I first stumbled on it when researching for the Christine episode. But it is truly a shame, as Grisson was a good man who accomplished a great deal in his life. So why is he all but forgotten today? Well, I think there are several reasons. People like Huss and Wycliffe were later championed by Protestants, and they clearly are proto-Protestants, with many of the same beliefs and goals. But Jean Gerson does not fit easily into that category, especially since he was partly responsible for Huss's death. So although he also wanted to reform, he's not remembered as a great reformer. But Gerson is also not championed by Roman Catholics. This is because most of his ideas at the Council of Constance would later be renounced. In fact, pretty much all of the conciliar cause would be lost within 100 years of the Council of Constance. Pope Martin V, the Pope who was elected after the Council, never officially approved the decrees of the Council, and later they were declared invalid. 
and popes would be the ultimate authority in the Catholic Church from then on, not councils. So while much of Gerson's writings are praised by the Catholic Church, his writings on church authority are rejected. But for many years after his death, Gerson would be remembered well. For instance, I was surprised to recently find Gerson quoted in the Augsburg Confessions, Lutheranism's founding document. Apparently, Luther and his companions still had respect for Gerson over 100 years later. So I hope you've enjoyed learning about Gerson. I think he has become one of my favorites so far, a man who was caught in the middle of great struggles, and also a man who made some tragic mistakes, but I think also a man who strove to be faithful. All right, so that's it on Gerson. We are finally going to leave the 14th and 15th centuries. Whew, we've been here a while. So as I said last time, next time we'll be going to the Emerald Isle. We're going to learn all about what's been happening in Ireland this whole time, and maybe even move a bit into the future, past the 14th and 15th centuries. And after a couple of episodes all about Ireland, then we will move to Spain, and then we'll return to the Middle East, especially since we haven't spent much time there since Cyril and Methodius way back in episode 6. And after that, maybe we'll hit the Reformation. That t-shirt that I mentioned is still coming. I promise I am doing some work on it. It's happening. I'm also hoping to get business cards and posters soon, so let me know if you want some of those. I have some other fun news as well. I've been approached by another podcast called Revived Thoughts about collaborating with them on some episodes. So on Revived Thoughts, they'll take a sermon from different figures in church history and they'll record them performed on audio. The idea is that some of these sermons have never actually been recorded, so now's a chance to hear them. Some of their historical figures include Jonathan Edwards, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, John Newton, and George Whitefield. It's pretty impressive stuff. So, I recommend checking them out. That is, Revived Thoughts. They've graciously invited me to perform one of the sermons, and we've decided to do one of Jean Gerson's sermons. So hopefully I'm going to find a copy of one of his sermons in English, but be on the lookout for that. Again, that's Revived Thoughts. Also, please don't forget to rate me on iTunes, Google, and Stitcher. And ratings are great, but if you want to be super duper awesome, please write me a little review. And, as always, tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.